Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he descended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, let's pray together as we study these great words. Our Father, rich spiritual food here in your word, help us to understand it and apply it to our life as a church, that we might grow into maturity as a church, for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, inside the service sheet, there are three headings that will help us understand what this section of the letter is saying. First, let me just help us to get our bearings again in Ephesians. Many of us were away over half term. Do listen to uh, the talks in the series that you missed. They're all online. Paul writes this letter to a local church. He writes to, if you like, uh, Christ's church in Ephesus, to a community of faith. Very different in some ways from Chalmers as a community of faith, but essentially no different. Same Lord, same gospel, same mission. And his purpose in writing to them then was to encourage them. 
Why? Because it was hard to live and witness as a gospel-centered church in Ephesus. They felt weak and up against it. On a day like today, where we focus on the suffering church, I was thinking this morning of maybe a church in, in Syria or Iraq or the Yemen or the north of Mali, sitting like we are, studying a letter like Ephesians. It's not hard for us to conclude that they needed encouraged about who they are as the church. But so do we, in a very different way in the Western world. For a number of years or generations, we struggled, I think, in the West to listen to a letter like Ephesians or Philippians or whatever New Testament letter and really feel that it had a relevance to us because it wasn't hard. But now it is harder in a different kind of Western world way. The primary application of the letter that we are studying is encouragement. Encouragement based on knowledge of who we are as a church. So, in other words, what is Chalmers? What are we as a church? And what is the church in the world? What is it? And I pray each day at the moment that this letter will encourage us, for many of us need encouragement. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 marks a change in gear. Paul has been in fifth gear in chapters 1 to 3. Fifth gear is the theological gear. It's the hardest one to understand. Yeah? And we've had this marvelous theology in chapters 1 to 3. Doctrine, knowledge of who we are as the church. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he goes down two gears into third gear, which is a little easier to drive in. And we get practical outworking of theology. Now, the New Testament never works. Practical stuff followed by theology. It never works imperative if you're an English scholar, followed by indicative. It doesn't work that way around. It goes theology, practical outworking, or indicative, followed by imperative. In other words, do this on the basis of who oops, you are. That was well caught, wasn't it? Do this on the basis of who you are. And as we get into uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, I want to encourage you not to forget the theology in chapters 1 to 3. Never forget who we are fundamentally. And never forget to pray the great prayers at the back end of chapter 1 and the passage that Neil preached on last Sunday in chapter 3. We will not grasp it unless God's Spirit is our teacher. And we will not feel the impact of who we are unless God's Spirit is our encourager and enabler. Now, just look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 as we get into the practical stuff. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Just note these words on the Suffering Church Sunday. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. All over the world, 
at the vanguard of gospel progress, people are able to say and have to say, I therefore am a prisoner for the Lord. And Paul is literally a prisoner, a physical prisoner, his life under constant threat. And Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, Paul uses the phrase, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called a number of times in the second half of the letter. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling is just a metaphor for living out practically day-to-day in our life as a church, who we are as a church. But it is a good metaphor, I think. Walking. It's not running. It's not skidding about in all sorts of directions. It's walking. Walking implies direction, knowledge that we are going somewhere. It's not a kind of aimless wandering. Now, the key phrase, though, in verse 1 is, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, when the word call is used in the Bible, it is never used in the sense of, come on then, this is what I want you to do. Call embraces something that is effectual. In other words, there is supernatural capacity within the call. And what is the calling to which we have been called as a church in Chalmers? Well, the two big things that Paul has taught us in chapters 1 to 3 are these. Number one. Number one is the answer to the question, does the future have a church? Yeah? It's a question people might ask today. Answer to that question, the future is the church. Yeah? The new creation, all there is in the future is the church. When the dwelling of God is with people. The future is the church. All there will be in the new creation is Christ and his people in the church. That's the first thing that Ephesians teaches us in terms of the doctrine or theology of the church. The second is this. In the world now, the church of Christ, the true church of Christ, which finds its expression all over the world today in this 24-hour period in communities of faith like Chammers and all the other ones in the world, local churches. In the world today, these local churches, and we are one of them, and let's not beat ourselves down, let's lift up our view of who we are as a church theologically. We are God's prototype in the world on the earth of what the new creation will be like. We have more in common with the new creation than we do with this world, because we are citizens of that world, not this world. We are heralds of eternity. We are God's new humanity. One new man, as Paul puts it, reconciled, bonded together in Jesus Christ. We do not act toward each other or think of each other or love each other or do stuff with each other, anything like any other group in the world does. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, no, we're not. Oh, no, we're not. Because it's hard being the church. It's hard keeping united. It's hard keeping focused. It's hard to have a heart for global missions. Now, it is hard. But never, ever forget this. 
that within this community of faith called Chalmers, there is the supernatural power and work of the Holy Spirit that has brought you from death to life and has brought the people beside you from death to life and has reconciled you and them to Almighty God through Jesus Christ and has reconciled you to one another. Supernatural stuff all around us in here. Never forget what we have in Christ. Never forget our spiritual capacity. You see, if it was down to us, chapters 4 to 6, to create unity, well, we would, we couldn't. How on earth could a church in one of the hardest parts of the world to be a Christian create unity and solidarity and love for one another in the face of the most intense persecution if that unity were not supernatural? There is no way on this earth that the church would have survived were it not for the supernatural power that is at work within it. And I think it's fair to say that there is no way that a church like Chalmers would survive or other gospel churches in this city were it not for the supernatural unity that God has given us. But that's right, I think. If you think back 20, 30 years in the apparent glory days of the church, where everything was kind of Christian in Britain, everybody went to church. Churches survived because it was easy. But now it's hard. What's happening? Living churches are thriving, and dying churches are dying. That's what we expect to see. So be encouraged when we get on to the practical stuff that our capacity, our God-given capacity, is astonishing. Now, number one, a healthy church is striving for unity. Therefore, verse 1, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, the calling to which you have been called God's new humanity, this community of faith, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that is the bond of peace. Now, the most important words in these verses are in verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain. Yep, not eager to attain or create the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I mean, it's a bit of a tall order, isn't it, for a bunch of people like us to be encouraged that it was down entirely to us to create the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, heaven help us. We are to maintain it. It's there. Now, why does Paul urge us to strive for or to be eager to maintain our unity with one another? Isn't it striking that the first thing he speaks about in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the unity of the church? We're going to get on to a whole lot of stuff like how, how we're to live as Christians tomorrow if we're working, how we're to live in, in our marriages, how those of you who are children, and many of us are, should be in relation to our parents, how parents should be in relation to children, how we need to dress ourselves up as armor every day in the Christian life. But the first thing Paul speaks about is unity in the church. Why? Well, we've seen in Ephesians, the reason is that it is our unity, through our unity, 
our reconciliation to one another, the way we love one another, the way we function as a united body, although we are disparate people, it is through that unity that the power of the gospel is seen. It is in our unity that God's wisdom, God's purposes are made known to the world and to the evil powers. And so logically, what are these evil powers, Satan and the spiritual forces of evil, he commands, going to target in a church unity? Because it is unity that reveals the power of the gospel. And if a church's unity is broken, the power of the gospel is not displayed. Now, how does Satan seek to break the unity of a local church? Well, he works with us as individuals. Um, I was thinking this week of that verse in 1 Peter 5, 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for not a church to devour, looking for someone to devour. So he, he ranges all around a church looking for individuals, targeting individuals, exploiting our weaknesses, tempting us. How does he tempt us? Here are some of his strategies. If only he can make me think that I'm always right. Or you think that you are always right. If only he can make us proud and arrogant, or harsh, or hard, or impatient. Or if only he can sow a seed in our hearts that we just will not be willing to bear with one another. Yep, it's very practical stuff. And there are two dimensions to this. There's the public stuff, what we say to each other in public, and the -the behind-the-scenes stuff, what we say about each other in private. Now, the devil works equally effectively with both to break unity. A church which, on the surface, at the level of public discussion, is united but where there are all sorts of stuff going on in the background, well, it's not unity, is it? Now, I think we can be thankful, and I think this is right to say, that as a church in Chalmers, we are united. I think we really are. And let me be clear as well that maintaining unity is not avoiding saying direct things or strong things. Speaking the truth in love often involves saying things, and you might feel that you are saying things and you're a lone voice, but you're right, and over time people come to understand and appreciate that, and it means listening to things that are hard to hear. I mean, if maintaining unity was not saying strong things. Well, about two Sundays and three, when people are preaching, there are strong things that are said. That's what maintains unity, truth and love. But we do have much to be thankful for in terms of our unity as a church, as elders, but we should not be complacent. It is when we let our guard down and we are not self-controlled or alert that the devil pounces. So, are we, are you, am I, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I think that's a lovely word the apostle uses. Eager. Keen. Zealous. Passionate. Eager.
eager, eager to maintain the unity. Here's how. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. With all humility, not just with humility, but with all humility. Be really humble, Paul says, in your attitude to one another. What does that mean? It means to look to the interests of others. It means to be selfless, to listen to their point of view, not to let your preferences dominate nor mine, to take the load from others, to share the load with others, to encourage others, to point out their strengths in private as well as in public, to rejoice in them. Now, let me say again that humility or weakness does not mean, uh, humility or meekness rather does not mean weakness. After all, the example of all humility is Jesus Christ who was not weak. With all humility and gentleness. Now, I'm just a bit conscious that what I've said about all humility to my own heart and your heart might just bounce off. We've got to really work hard at being humble. It's not natural to us. Rejoicing. Rejoicing, for example, in the diversity of styles of music we have. One of the things I've always sought to avoid as a minister is a contemporary service, a traditional service, because that's not a community that bears with one another in love. That's one example. Bearing and sharing the Lord. I always feel personally bleakest on a Sunday night when I spend a good bit of the Sunday showing one face here in public and quite another face in the private of our home. And I've got someone that I live with who will point that out to me and speak the truth in love, as many of us do. Gentleness. You know, just when you say a word like gentleness in the quiet of a room like this, and, and, and it's such a powerful thing. Gentleness. Be kind to each other. The people around you and the preacher in front of you and the elders that you see in this room are far, far more fragile than they look. Be gentle. It's not weak, though. It's not saying straight things. Some of the people in Chalmers who are the most gentle with me say the most direct things to me because I need to hear them. I don't always listen at the time, but over time I do. Be patient. Give them time. And bear with one another in love. Now, that is very practical and very real. As elders, as staff, in our small groups, in the band, and our rotas, we have to bear with one another in love. I don't know what happened this morning in the band practice at 8 o'clock, but I suspect a bit of bearing with one another in love was necessary. It's just how it is, isn't it? Or at 7.30 when the church was set up this morning. 
bearing with one another in love, or in your staff team, when uh, somebody uh, just, you know how it is, gets under your skin, bear with one another in love. Or as elders, bearing with one another in love, or in your small groups, whatever it is, bearing with one another in love. In private, as well as in public. Now, I encourage us all to take this to heart and to be eager about this stuff, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond uh, of peace. One of the uh, features of... um, I'm going to single him out, Sam. There you go. He'll wake up now. One of the things about Sam as a personality, I think it's right for me to say, he contributes this to our staff team. He's eager, 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 eager to foster this kind of stuff. What a blessing that is in a church. What a blessing it is when people are working in the church eager to maintain the bond of peace, eager to maintain unity because they are gentle, because they are patient, because they forbear. But they're not weak. Never confuse it with weakness. Strength, strength of conviction. Now, we've applied this to our context as a local church, but this eagerness to maintain unity runs beyond the local church to, for example, the relationship between gospel churches in this city. Chalmers is part of the East of Scotland Gospel Partnership, and these gospel partnerships in the UK are becoming the the mainstream, the mainspring of gospel vision because they are not bonded around old structures. They're bonded around gospel churches. But we will not hear the aims of the gospel partnership. Encouraging gospel churches, training gospel workers, planning gospel churches. That will not happen if the leaders of these churches and the elders in these churches and the people in these churches do not strive with eagerness to maintain unity. It can only happen if in the city there is the absence of rivalry. How big is your church? How many small groups have you got? We should rejoice if a new church pops up and somebody sidles up to us and says, can I go and be part of that church because they need our help? Absolutely. Unity. Now, the last thing I want to say on this theme of maintaining unity. Remember, it is maintaining what is God-given. I mean, we're off to a good start because the Holy Spirit has reconciled us to one another. Yeah, we are off to a great start. And it's verses 4 to 6, and they are very important. And I think they may help clear up for what is often for people an area of confusion. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And here's the point. True unity in a local church, true unity between churches in a city, true unity in the worldwide church. And remember, we need to, and the Bible draws this distinction between the visible church and the real church. The visible church is not the same thing as the real church. You cannot be a church, you cannot be part of the universal church in the world devoid of doctrine. You cannot be united with each other unless you believe the same things. You can't be. It's just not possible. You might say you are. You might be part of a grouping that says you are, but you are not united if you are not united to Christ. You can't be. Yeah? 
And that's why verses 4, 5, and 6 say unity is always based on doctrine. That's why Paul has chapter 4 after chapters 1, 2, and 3. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine unites the church. Now, let me be bold enough to say that you might have a group of people who meet together every Sunday that calls itself a church. It's got church on the door. They might meet in a building that's called a church building, but it's not a, new church, a true church because it's not a community of people who believe in the gospel. It's not a community of Christians. And we need to say that, I think. It, it, it might be a nice group to belong to, but it has more in common with a golf club than it does with eternity. Why on earth do people keep going along to these kind of churches? And they are all over a city like this. Why do they keep going? Well, I think because they're nice to be part of. And the one thing that is missing from these churches is the devil and his angels seeking to oppose them and disrupt them, for there is nothing to oppose, nothing to disrupt. Now, I hope that is not harsh or judgmental. The reason I have tried to be direct with that is simply because the New Testament is even more direct than that. It's such a non-PC thing to say, is it? But the New Testament is crystal clear. And the principle is not to confuse the true church with the visible church. They are not the same thing. And it's obvious, I think, when you think about it. You might put a label on the door that says church, You might do stuff that looks like church. It might be what you think church or want church to be like, but unless it is grounded in doctrinal truth or gospel clarity, it is not a church, and so-called unity between such churches is meaningless. Meaningless. It is not gospel unity. It is, at its best, structural, institutional uh, unity. The Bible only speaks about two categories of church, the universal church, and the local church. It never speaks about a category like denomination or grouping of churches. They are useful. 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 Absolutely. But expendable if the doctrinal foundations are ripped out of them for the sake of unity, which is meaningless. That's why across the UK... The flourishing center ground for gospel vision increasingly is gospel partnerships between gospel churches. Now, what is that unity based on? One body, that's the uh, true church, one spirit. Every Christian needs to be born again in the spirit. The indwelling spirit unites us. The unity of the spirit is not some kind of vague term. The unity of the spirit is you and I sitting here reconciled to one another because Christ himself lives in your heart. One hope, one hope, one hope. So when a major church leader in our nation signs something like the Columba Declaration, which says there are many, many hopes, that is no basis for unity. To have 25 signatories on a document from every faith under the sun. Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. One hope in one Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith. Christ died for our sins. One baptism. Paul is not talking about the mode of baptism. He is talking about a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness 
of sins. You cannot have unity without repentance. You cannot have unity without the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have unity without contrition. You cannot have unity without radical transformation in the heart that comes through conversion. That is real unity. And that is what will endure. And that is what will be the future when Christ returns. Now, a healthy church is striving for uh, unity. Second, a healthy church is equipping everyone for ministry, verses 7 to 12. Now, we are running out of time rapidly, and uh, I failed again. But uh, every time you listen to a sermon, I'm wasting time now on these verses. Uh, The preachers always say at this point, you know, there's just so much in here. 10 times a series of 10 worth in the, and there is in these verses. I mean, you, you just go away and think about what I've just said about unity. It, it just clears up a lot of fog. Again and again, with all that we've been through as a church, people have written to me, emailed me, spoken to me, and said, why are you sacrificing unity? You're not. You're you're seeking unity, true unity. Only be grounded in doctrine in the end. Now, a healthy church is equipping everyone for ministry. Grace was given, verse 7, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he descended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I wish Paul had left out verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 and cut to the chase and gone straight to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints. Now, the quotation there inserted in there is from Psalm 68, and it's about the Ark of the Covenant coming to Jerusalem, to Zion. The Psalm traces the whole process that the Ark had been brought up to Jerusalem. And the ultimate fulfillment of that, Psalm 68, is Christ being brought from death to glory, the ascended Christ. That's why the Psalm is quoted. And the point is the gifts that come to the church, yeah, the gifts that you and I have, the gifts that God gives his church come not from the church, but from the Christ, who is the king and head of the church. The gifts come from heaven to earth, just like Christ came from heaven to earth. And they come from Jesus Christ, who has defeated the powers of evil, and therefore the gifts that he gives to the church, the gospel, gospel proclamation, are used to advance the cause of Christ in the world against the powers of evil. Now, there's a lot of great theology in there, but we need to move on. What are the gifts that God gives the church? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And the point is here, and this is Paul's emphasis, the ascended Christ gives to his church leaders. That's Paul's focus here, the gift of leaders for the church. Who are these people? Who are these leaders? Now, most of the Bible commentators and you know, some of you will know a lot more about this than I do. Most, though, are agreed that these are not five different sets of people. 
one leaders, two apostles, three prophets, four evangelists, and then shepherds, teachers. One, two, three, four, five. And the wider context of the New Testament would say, no, they're not five sets of people. There are two sets of people here. First, there are, number one, the apostles, the prophets. That's one. And then there are, number two, the evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Now, let's consider each in turn. First, the apostles, prophets. Who were they? They are people like Paul, Peter, and John, who exercised a foundational ministry at the beginning of the church in the first century. And Paul is quite clear on their unique foundational role. So just glance back with me to chapter 2, verse 20. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul refers to the apostles and prophets, but not the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And he calls these apostles and prophets the foundation of the church. So 2.19, he writes, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And then again in 3, 4 to 5, chapter 3, 4 to 5, just glance at that. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is now, that is, in the period of the apostles and prophets in the early church, as it has now been revealed to its holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. People like me, Paul says. And so his point, I think, is that the apostles, the prophets, are the uniquely inspired individuals upon which the church was built, built on their teaching and on their writing. So here's a straight question, and here's a straight answer, which I think is Paul's answer from the New Testament. Should we expect to see apostles and prophets in the church today, according to the Apostle Paul? No. So what should we expect to see in the church today in terms of leadership? Answer, Category number two, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, I think that is one office of leadership. The best way, I think, to understand this is a church leader. People like, I guess, me or what I should be like. And the best New Testament examples of this category of leader, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, are people like Timothy and Titus. And when you read a letter like 2 Timothy, which is the identicate of the Christian minister or the Christian leader, what Paul says to Timothy about his role as a church leader embraces three things. Timothy, you are to lead that church in evangelism and mission. Timothy, you are to shepherd that church. And Timothy, you are to teach that church the scriptures. And it makes sense. It's logical. A fit person to lead a church will lead the church in evangelism, clear as to the missional priorities of the church, will shepherd, care for the people, and will teach them. The evangelist, the shepherd, the teacher is a description of the Christian leader. And that's what I'm supposed to be. It's what we're training Andy and Sam to be. And I want us to be encouraged as a church that we are committed to training leaders for the church. So what is my job remit? What is Andy and Sam's job remit? What is the remit of the elders and small group leaders who share in this leadership? Evangelism, shepherding, which means caring, discipling, protecting, guiding, and teaching. That's our job. But to what end? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. 
And you see the point there. My job, the elder's job, is to lead in evangelism, is to shepherd the flock, is to teach the scriptures, so that all of us, we are the saints, are equipped for ministry. So who does the ministry in Chalmers? All the saints. Our job as leaders is to equip God's people for ministry. And the point you see there is that Christ gifts everyone for ministry. And our job as leaders is to equip us for ministry. Which is why, I guess, we engage in projects like the Gospel Project. Which is why people like Sam are investing time increasingly now in encouraging and equipping and facilitating our small group leaders. We are a church of 300 people. That means that my job, along with the elders, is to equip and liberate 300 people to use the gifts God has given them. And of course, if the devil seeks to frustrate unity, he will seek to frustrate the liberality that God wants to give Christians to use their gifts. How does he do that? He makes people like me hold on to the reins. He makes people like me jealous of the lectern. He makes uh, some people perhaps jealous of the thing they do. He, 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 he makes us think that some gifts are more important than others. And he might also make the saints think that all you are to do Sunday by Sunday is turn up here and listen to the people who do ministry. You see, a church should always have a revolving door. A church should always have gaps that are filled. And it needs the right mindset in a church. And I'm encouraged that that mindset is here. A healthy church is eager to keep united. A healthy church is equipping, equipping, always nurturing, engaging, encouraging people for ministry. So here's a practical take-home in this. You're a small group leader or in a small group. You're an elder or you're speaking with an elder or you're chatting with me or I'm chatting with you. Talk about the gospel and talk about how you might serve. Talk about how you might flourish in the Christian life. Pray for your small group. Pray in your small group. Pray that you will be liberated, equipped. Pray that you will be willing. Finally, a healthy church is growing into uh, maturity. Now, when uh, children are small, I remember being a small child once, and you know as a small child, you kind of move between passions for this, then that, then this, then that, and you last about 10 minutes. So whether it's, for me, it was uh, farm animals yeah, and tractors, and then Action Man. Remember Action Man? You don't have that now. It's not PC enough. Yeah. And then you grow up and you, you get into this sport or then you get into that sport and then you follow that and you're passionate about it but you flit between the latest thing. Yeah? When I was at school, everyone began supporting Aberdeen Football Club because they began to win. You flit around. That's what children do. That's what churches do when they're little. The latest wind blows and they run after that doctrine. Or the latest fad comes and they run after that new strategy. And when the wind of opposition blows, it blows them over. And they do not stand fast and stand strong. And a healthy church is growing into maturity when a church is eager, is striving for unity, when it's humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, 
when a church is equipping everyone for ministry, when the culture is one of equipping, enabling people for ministry, that church is in good spiritual health and growing into maturity. And what does a church like that look like? Well, we could spend four sermons on this. Let me give you just headings. Number one, the people in that church get to know God better and better each week. The answer to the prayer that Neil preached on last week comes each week. Knowledge of Jesus. Number two, the church is steady and wise. It is not tossed to and fro. Number three, it is truthful and loving. It teaches the word of God and it loves people from the heart. And number four, it is thoroughly Christ-like. And uh, that's a lovely way Paul ends. Uh, And by that I mean I think that when people come into the church, into the community, they experience a different world. That's not people who aren't Christians. They experience God's new humanity in Christ. And they get a sight of what eternity will be like for believers and what it could be like for them. Now, do you think our church could be like all that? Do you think? Do you really think? Well, discuss it over lunch. And and shift your discussion from could we really do that in our own strength to, well, is God not already doing it? Because is the Spirit of God not, one, uniting us, gifting us from heaven, and maturing us? If you belong to Jesus, and the people beside you belong to Jesus, then nothing can imperil our unity, ultimately. Nothing can imperil the gifts that Jesus pours out on earth from heaven. And nothing will stop us growing into maturity and getting home to glory. But, here's the take-home word, yeah? Be eager, keen. Be keen, eager, strive for unity. Let's pray. Father God, a lot of stuff in here this morning. Help us to tease it out and to understand who we are in Christ, united, gifted, growing. We are united, we are gifted, we are growing, but help us to be eager, 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 eager to maintain that unity, eager to to enable people for ministry, and eager to grow up into maturity, that we will not be blown around like a little skiff on the ocean, strong and stable and steady. We pray, Lord, that across this church family, patience and gentleness and love and forbearance and truthfulness and encouragement will be the order of the day publicly and privately. From us all and in us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.